Welcome back, dear listener. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. You are listening to our podcast series titled Science in the Bible. This is the third session out of 11 where Michael will be talking about physical science. You can find the video version, PowerPoint worksheet, and other resources at our website, evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. You can also directly support this broadcast and help us keep it free by donating at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. And with that, here is Michael presenting physical science. Hi, welcome to Evidence for Faith, and it's me, Michael Lane, your host, back again. So glad you're joining us today as we're going through this series about science and God. Um, science and God, boy, it seems like the two are constantly at battle with each other. Many people will place God on one mountain, as I've said in the past, and science on another, and with a big chasm in between, like, oh boy, there's, there's just so much separation between them. Like science, some people will say science has disproved God. But in this series, what we're looking at is to show you that science and the Bible aren't, are not at odds with each other. True science is actually supported uh, by the Bible. Even though the Bible was written um, many thousands of years ago, it, it's still very, very accurate, the science that's in there. No, the Bible's not a science textbook, but what's in the Bible is very accurate because it came from a perfect God. And as we look at this lesson today, we're going to be talking about physical science. Now, the Bible does not have a lot having to do with just general physical science. When you take a physical science course in school, it's, you know, you're going to study chemistry, you're going to study atoms and stuff like this. There's, there's not a lot that you find in the Bible pertaining to this having to do with, with all of the aspects of physical science. It's not, the Bible's not a science textbook. No, it's not. But as we've said numerous times, if there's any science uh, principles in the Bible, they are going to be true. There's no science errors, provable science errors in the Bible. There are none. And it's like a lot of times people in scientists in particular, some scientists, not all, but some have totally tried to explain things, trying to explain the universe, trying to explain life and stuff without even considering the possibility that there's a God. And so without even having God in the equation, well, then you've, you've thrown the Bible out, you've thrown out God, and you're trying to explain things about nature. And the thing is, nature can't really explain itself all the time. There are certain problems. A very famous scientist, Dr. Henry Marginot, um, he was a professor of physics and natural history at Yale University. That's a prestigious place. He stated this, it is absolutely unreasonable to reject the notion of a creator by appealing to science. Science has definitely shown the non-contradiction of creation out of nothing, unquote. This guy sort of got it. You, you, it's not that science is, is disproving the Bible. It's not that science is disproving God. Um, that's not what this is about. As Louis Pasteur said, science should point us to God and so that's what we're going to look at today in, in this physical science aspect of this lesson. Now, if you're not into physical science, I'm a biologist, as you probably already are aware. I'm a biologist, so I look at the world through the eyes of a biologist. Physical science, it's not exactly my field, but it is something that I have taught in the past since I've taught um, physical science in middle school and even um, in early high school. Uh, so I've got some background with this, but I'll tell you what really gets me about this, this whole thing with physical science and talking about creation and everything. Ah, there are some songs I love. I love the music of the 50s and the 60s. I really do. Love that stuff. And uh, one of my favorites was, besides like Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra and stuff, I really liked Elvis Presley. And I remember even as a, a student in junior high, listening to my, my siblings, they had a, a, an album. Um, yeah, what's an album? Uh, early days of CDs, um, but, and, which was earlier than the 
MP3s and stuff, but we won't get into that. But it was uh, Elvis Presley album um, uh, called How Great Thou Art, and he sang a bunch of hymns. And one of the songs that he sang in there, I used to love this. It was called Somebody Bigger Than You and I. I used to travel around singing. Matter of fact, I started singing publicly in, in junior high, and in high school, I was actually performing, uh, and sometimes in concerts and stuff, during my high school years and into college and then beyond, and then I actually used to sing a lot, contemporary Christian music. This is a song I've sang many times, Somebody Bigger Than You and I. Just look at the opening lyrics of this song. Just listen. Who made the mountains? Who made the trees? Who made the river? flow to the sea and who hung the moon in the starry sky somebody bigger than you and i i mean it was a, it's a beautiful song and it's talking about nature and about just the physical features and stuff that we see all around us in the universe today well this lyric uh these lyrics on this song um, are giving us the answer to this stuff and the answer is so easy because the answer is there is a god as I said, Louis Pasteur, one of my favorite quotes from him, as he is, is talking about frequently, he was talking about that science shouldn't pull us away from God. Science should point us towards God. And I just love that. Uh, he's like I've said before, if you've listened to our things, uh, our lessons, Louis Pasteur is one of my favorite scientists. I just love this guy. Well, we're going to start off today with one uh, physical feature aspect. There's a, a few different ones we're going to talk about today, but this first one is really interesting. In physical science, I used to teach this, and um, we had the theory of called uniformity, the theory of uniformity. Now, if you're foreign to this, I will explain it to you, and then I'm going to show you how this really fits with the Bible. But... Um, Uniformity is a theory that is best explained by the person who really put it together. Um, his name was James Hutton. Now he was a Scottish geologist who lived in the latter parts of the seventh, or I'm sorry, 18th century, and he talked about this and put this idea of this together. Now, what he's trying to do is he's trying to explain in uniformity how the world looks the way it does. Why, why does the world, the features and stuff of the world, why do they appear the way that they do? This, in, in this, he, he comes up with this theory of uniformity that he forms. And he states in this theory, quote, the present is the key to the future, unquote. What he's talking about here, now he's often called the father of uniformity. And what he's doing, he took his ideas um, and he's, he pushed God out of the picture, first of all. God, the Bible, he just didn't even consider those sources. So he's trying to explain everything about how the world looks and how everything is just basically by looking at physical features of the earth. He's noticing rivers flowing and during rainstorms, floods and things like this, some sediment gets washed away. Well, he stated that the physical features of the earth are explained by erosion and other natural causes acting in a present rate and they continued to run like this in these present rates for long periods of time, uh, actually for millions of years. And now if I've confused you with that, let me just give you an example. It's talking about the Grand Canyon is a great example of this. If you've been to the Grand Canyon, been to the big hole in the, in the ground there, and you see this, plaques around there, pamphlets, books will often say that it's the result of millions of years of erosion with the Colorado River throwing, flowing through there and just eroding away rock and sediment throughout time over millions of years. It forms, it's, it's erosion, so it's a natural process, but because you see how deep it is, this must have taken millions of years. I think most people who have been to the Grand Canyon have probably seen plaques and stuff pertaining to this, and that's what this is talking about. And this whole theory, this, this area of science is called uniformity. Um, so the Colorado River has been cutting through for millennia, according to this theory, and you see evidence of this, as they will say, by the different layers that you can see, because there's many different layers, and often are different colored, they're different type of rock, et cetera, et cetera. They say that this all formed over millions of years. Um, so this is the theory of uniformity. In other words, science are trying to date the present physical features of the planet by processes like erosion, which is a natural process. And since we know the rate of erosion, we get the idea then, oh, this thing has to be millions of years old because we can sit and watch streams um, being you know, slowly cut into dirt and stuff like this. So in the theory of uniformity, scientists try to date the present features of the planet by processes such as 
erosion. You know, now I love the Flintstones. I don't know if you guys are into the Flintstones. I love the Flintstones. And the Flintstones actually uh, has a little segment on this theory of uniformity. It's amazing how uniformity is so subtly put into things that we watch, television, books we read, et cetera, et cetera. They put it in there as like a fact. And the thing is, there was nobody back there watching all this except, you know, Fred and Barney. Uh, but just watching how this is put together in this, this little video clip um, from one of their episodes, When the Flintstones Go to the Grand Canyon. It's a short li little clip here, but I want to show you the, this. It's, it's just really, really interesting. So let's watch that for a second. Been traveling for four days now. We should be getting close to the ranch. Yeah, we'll be there in a few hours. Hey, Fred, Fred, uh, look at that sign up ahead. Boy, the Grand Canyon. That's one of nature's wonders. Let's take a look. So that's the Grand Canyon, huh? That's it. Well, doesn't look like much to me. Not now, but they expect it to be a big thing someday. <laughs> Now, I hope you really enjoyed the Flintstones. I mean, that, wasn't that hilarious? I mean, you're looking, they have that uh, set up so well. The, the uh, cartoonists are showing um, all four of them looking down, just like you do when you go to the Grand Canyon, you look down into this hole, but then as the camera sort of spans out, as they do this, you see it's just a little creek. I mean, to be honest, I always wondered if the Grand Canyon was actually formed by this, why don't we see more Grand Canyons all over the earth if there's, uh, all this uniformity taking place all over the earth over millions of years. Shouldn't there be a lot of canyons? I mean, there are some. Israel has a small Grand Canyon down in the Negev in the desert areas down to the south. Um, it's beautiful. It's a great place to go. Uh, if you ever go to Israel, get a chance to go to see that. It's remarkable, this massive canyon. But I don't think this took millions of years. And sort of in a way, the Flintstones uh, are making, they're, they're saying and teaching its uniformity, but in a way, they're sort of making fun of it, uh, which I, I love. Probably another reason I love the Flintstones. But that's what we're talking about. So a few decades now, it's the, this goes on. So Hutton comes up with this idea of uniformity. Now, to do this, he needs a lot of time. And so to get time, um, he, uh, he, he says this is taking place over a long period of time, millions of years, billions of years, et cetera, et cetera. But another person comes along that adds to this theory. His name is Charles Lyell. Now, Charles Lyell wrote a book. He was a geologist also, and he wrote a book called Principles of Geology back in 1830. And in this book, um, he actually handed this book to a friend of his, which influenced a lot, which I'll mention in a second. But in Charles Lyell's idea, now he too is trying to explain how the world is the way it is, et cetera, et cetera, without God even in the equation. We're not even going to go that route. We don't even want to talk about God in trying to explain things. So as trying to explain this, he supports uniformity, and he actually constructed a uh, time scale over millions of years. And the thing is, we see this in textbooks frequently. But the thing is also, uh, Lyell and Hutton greatly influenced a person, and Lyell handed his book uh, to Charles Darwin. Let's see how this is all going to be connected at the moment. Charles Darwin was getting ready to sail on the HMS Beagle around the world. And Lyell knew, well, this is not going to be a pleasure cruise, you know, with shuffleboard and stuff. So he hands him his book and tells him, you know, here's something you can read on the trip. So Darwin has Lyell's book. So he's got this whole theory of uniformity. And he needs millions of years for his whole theory of Darwinian evolution um, and, uh, to take place. So Darwin forms on the Beagle. Everyone knows this. You study this in biology courses and just in, in a lot of places you see this on television and specials. He comes up with this theory of evolution um, and natural selection, the origin of the species book, etc., which is published in 1859. But this was important for evolution because now this gives the idea we don't need God. We've thrown God out of the equation and now we can explain how all this takes place because we have lots of time. Time is a major pillar for Darwinian evolution and for the theory of uniformity. So we see time is of the essence for them. Well, prior to Hutton, now just give you a little background here. Prior to Hutton and all this uniformity starting, 
Most scientists in the world believe that the Earth was not billions of years old or even millions of years old. Um, they didn't think that whatsoever. And, and most scientists believe that the Earth's physical features that you see, mountains, canyons, waterfalls, etc., were caused by sudden events that we call catastrophes. Catastrophes, we've experienced some of those even in our lifetimes. This is an idea that's called catastrophism. Catastrophism, very popular theory before Hutton, very popular. Most scientists based their beliefs and stuff on this and their science upon it. And what it is, it's based on natural recorded events, uh, volcanoes, earthquakes, floods, etc. Major catastrophes that happen to the planet. And it changes the way the planet looks. The thing is, it's observable because people actually witness these things. We have seen stuff like this happen in our own lifetime. Volcanoes exploding, uh, devastating areas, earthquakes totally changing uh, the level and the, the features, physical features of the land, floods totally changing things. We see this and this is supported by the Bible. I mean, <laughs> Noah's flood, among other catastrophes, earthquakes and things are frequently mentioned in the Bible. So catastrophism is actually supported frequently by biblical text. But as Hutton and all these guys did, remove God out of the equation. Get rid of the Bible. We won't, we're not going to consider those possibilities. So what are you left with? We're left with the other. So when Hutton proposed his theory, it was quickly adopted by any secular science who wanted to also to remove God from the equation. Atheists and others, agnostics and stuff that don't want to have God in the equation for how the earth formed, this gave them some theory to, to use to explain how the structure of the earth was put together without using the Bible or using God whatsoever. That's how we got to this whole thing here. Now, I have had on occasions, <laughs> I've had on occasions some people who actually call themselves Christians, and I don't know if they were, that's not for me to judge, but they, they claim to be Christians, and they say and have told me that uh, the theory of uniformity is actually supported in the Word of God. And I said, really, uh, where? And they will almost always go to this one verse. And the verse here is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. And they quote this. Now remember, I've just explained to you what the, uh, the theory of uniformity is. Now notice what this says. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, and I'm reading this out of the New American Standard Bible, which is a word-for-word -word translation. Here's what we have. For since the fathers fell asleep, just sort of pass that part off. Here we go. All things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, according to that, right there, that last part of that sentence, we see all things continuing as they were from the beginning. That's the theory of uniformity. And they say, see, it's right in the Bible. Now, when you come across people who often uh, take a Bible verse and they try and quote you something that seems to be uh, anti-God or uh, just totally against what the Word of God says in your mind and in your heart, particularly if you're born again Christian, the Holy Spirit sort of just says, something doesn't, something's not right here. You need to check this out. And in this case, what they, they have done, the more than one person who has done this to me and used this verse, they're taking something out of context. I mean, really, you could come up with almost anything you want, uh, theology-wise, and find a verse to back it up if you take the verse totally out of context. What do I mean by taking out of context? What they're doing is they're taking the fourth verse of this chapter. Now, the thing is, this is in the middle of a paragraph. Paragraphs have opening statements, thesis sentences or topic sentences, and the sentences all pertain to that. But to pull one sentence out of a paragraph, it is so easy to take something and twist its meaning, which is what's going on here. For instance, we're going to take that example that they've given, 2 Peter 3, 4, but now I want to look at the paragraph. Let's see what this is actually saying. This, not just taking the verse, let's take the paragraph and see what the context of this is. Because if you read the whole paragraph, you're gonna see this is not supporting uh, uniformity, it's actually sort of condemning it. So here we go, we're gonna start at verse three and go through verse seven and take a look and see where this goes. So it says, now, know this first of all, that in the last days, stop here for just a second, in the last days. Well, this is talking about in the last days of the last days, at the end times. So it's giving us a time frame of when this is going to be taking place. So continuing. That in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Stop here for a second. What's this saying? Mockers. Who are these? People who are making fun of God, making fun of his word. They don't believe it. They are mocking God. 
These are non-believers, these are secularists, these are people like uh, maybe they believe in many gods. Uh, they're definitely not Christians. They're not followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we got here. So mockers will come with their mockings, following after their own lusts and saying, what are they saying? Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, isn't that interesting? What is this statement? This is a statement. Are you catching this? This is a statement of mockers, not somebody who's speaking for God and supporting the Bible. This is what God is saying. The mockers in the end times are going to start saying this stuff. Let's continue with this because we're not done with this, this sentence. Continuing here, it reads this. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that the word of God, of uh, the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of, of water and by water, through which the world at the time was destroyed by being flooded with water. Just stop here a second. What are we talking about? A catastrophe. A catastrophe shaping the earth. What was the catastrophe? Noah's flood. That's what this is talking about. And this is in the New Testament, of course. But we're talking about a catastrophe doing the changing. Not millions of years. This is an event. A single event that people were going through. And we continue. But by his word in the present, heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. In other words, it's talking about what's going to happen to the mockers. So you see, if you take one verse out of the middle paragraph, you can get it to mean what you want. But if you look at the whole paragraph, this is not supporting uniformity. It's actually um, going against uniformity um, because God is saying that this is what mockers say, people who do not believe in him and make fun of him. That's what this is talking about. So now there's another problem with uniformity. Uniformity cannot be observed and it cannot be tested to determine the age of the earth. You can't go back millions of years and billions of years because there was nobody supposedly back there billions of years and millions of years ago recording this. So you can't really use um, scientific, observable scientific data to support this. Now, on the other hand, to be totally honest, there are some things in catastrophism that also cannot be observed. Um, and so neither can catastrophism at times be observable data. But the thing is, there are catastrophes that do happen that are observable. So it has more observable documented science than uniformity does. So that's one thing. You know what it all comes down to? Either case, you're dealing with faith. Which one you're going to believe in? Do you believe in millions of years and billions of years that this is how this all happened? Or are you going to take what the Word of God says um, and say that catastrophes, or even if you just watch the news, catastrophes can cause a lot of changes very abruptly on our planet. And these are documented. You do see this. Now, what ended up happening, once we have Hutton and Lyell and Darwin, uh, their books come out, then they put together a thing called the geologic timescale. The geologic timescale, you can find it in every single biology book and geology book. It's a classic little thing that you see come up, and it shows different layers of supposedly time. They've given them different names, and some of these are very famous because of the Jurassic Park series. Um, but they have different names and are showing over millions of years what happens. It, what, what is fascinating to me, and we'll talk about this later on in one of our series on geology, but you don't see that time frame exactly perfect like that, like you see in the textbooks, any place on the planet except one place. There's only one place you find that geologic time frame absolutely perfect that each layer is in the pristine and perfect place because often these things are mixed up. So to see it all in perfect outline, just like it is in all the charts, there's only one place you can see that anywhere on the planet. Biology and geology textbooks. That's it. That's the only place you're going to find it because it doesn't happen in nature. Um, you go to the Grand Canyon, you're going to see it doesn't, some layers are missing, some time frames are missing, some things seem to be on top of others. It's, it's a little screwed up. Um, because it's trying to explain things without a catastrophe just through long periods of time of erosion. There's problems with this kind of things. So finding layers of sediment and rock does not guarantee millions of years. Did you catch that? Just finding layers of sediment and rock, even if they're different colors and stuff, does not guarantee millions of years. Let me give you the perfect example of this that I remember uh, back in 1980. Um, there was a place called Mount St. Helens. 
uh, I believe it was in Washington State, beautiful place. Pictures before uh, the disaster that happened, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Mount St. Helens, huge mountain, snow-capped mountain, gigantic. All around, beautiful, pristine, clear water lakes. Uh, rivers flowing through there. Uh, trees everywhere, it was an extremely densely uh, forested area. Then in 1980, all of this changed abruptly by a catastrophe. Mount St. Helens, a dormant volcano, came to life and exploded. Exploded with more power than several nuclear bombs going off at once. This was great devastation, a great catastrophe. Within days, not millions of years, days, not even decades, days, great canyons were formed, showing various layers of sediment and rock. Massive canyons, very, very deep, hundreds of feet deep canyons. And it happened not in millions of years, not in decades, not in one year. It happened in days. This is catastrophism. This was a catastrophe, and it changed the feature of the Earth. And it didn't take a long period of time. Matter of fact, if you see the pictures, which I'm showing, pictures before, it's absolutely gorgeous. Mount St. Helens, beautiful area. Then you look at the pictures after. It looks like you're on a different planet. It's the same place, but it's now got canyons everywhere and, and there's no trees, no life. It looks literally like you're on some foreign planet someplace out in like Mars or something. It's totally devastated. And the thing is, it happened just in days. It didn't take long for this to happen. So catastrophisms do occur. This has been documented. Matter of fact, there's many pictures and motion pictures showing the mountain actually blowing up and showing the catastrophe and changing instantly the whole landscape. Now, if you were to go back in uh, a little bit here and um, we didn't know anything about Mount St. Helens and we go there today and we see, oh, look at all the layers. Look how deep the layers are. Oh, there's different colors of layers. Oh my gosh, this must have taken millions of years. You would be amazed to find out that, nope, it happened in just a couple of days. See, I believe the Grand Canyon formed very quickly in a similar thing um, as a result probably of the great Noah flood. I believe that water rushed through here very, very quickly and caused this. This is not uh, an example of what we look at with Mount St. Helens and, and other places like that. That didn't take millions of years. This is not uniformity. This is catastrophism. And catastrophism is supported by the Bible. Bible mentions volcano, or not volcanoes, but it talks about earthquakes and floods and things like this, and we see that. So that's one part. Now, let's go to another aspect of physical science. This one's really interesting because when I get into this and I start studying my Bible um, and get into the book of Colossians or the book of Hebrews, I sometimes get really excited. Matter of fact, just a week ago, I was speaking to a, a group of teenagers and I got into a passage where it was talking about uh, invisible particles that make up matter. And I was reading out of the, the Word of God and I just started sort of jumping around on the stage there in front of everybody because I was like, oh my gosh, you guys know what this is talking about? It's talking about atoms. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me tell you about atoms. Now, we all know atoms are the building blocks of the universe. What are atoms? Well, let's just to get into it. You know, they make up molecules and molecules form all matter. But where did all this idea come from? Let me take you back through a little history. Sorry if you don't get into history, but this is important to see because this is, this is really remarkable. Because remember, the Bible was written uh, over 2,000 years ago. So this is really interesting because atoms are described in the Word of God. Let me show you. This is so cool. The story of atoms as we get into it. Around, from what we can gather today, around 500 BC, yeah, before Christ, big, big time difference here from today, ancient India, there were philosophers that proposed an idea of the existence of very small, invisible, if you will, particles that make up things. Now, that sounds pretty scientific. That was a pretty accurate statement. About 50 years after this, over in, in uh, Europe now, we have the Greeks propose that all matter is actually composed of four basic elements, and that would be earth, air, water, and fire. So in other words, matter is composed of things is what I'm trying to get across here. Now, the people in India were getting it pretty close because they saw invisible particles in a way. You know, um, That's the way they viewed it, that they were thinking it's invisible particles making up matter. Well, we continue. Um, go about 1400 years or something like that. We go into the time now in the 1661, we have a very famous scientist, Robert Boyle, who wrote um, a book called The Skeptical Chemist. And in this, he uses a term 
because he's describing what matter is composed of, he uses a term called corpuscles. Corpuscles to describe what he thought was what matter was composed of. Now, he had no proof. There's no electron microscopy at this point. He had no proof, but he had a theory. And he wrote his theory down and published it in 1661. Not long after this, just right after, a couple of decades later, the great Sir Isaac Newtons, one of the greatest scientists who's brilliant minds that's ever existed on the planet. Um, and he's a scientist, yes, but I don't know if most of you are aware of this. He was a Bible scholar. Do you know that Isaac Newton actually wrote a lot of papers, not just on science, but he actually wrote more on theology and the Bible than he did on science. He even wrote commentaries on the books of the Bible. He was a theologian. Uh, we don't talk about that in the public school system, but Isaac Newton was a brilliant Bible scholar. And in studying the Bible, he came up also with this idea and theorized about something that would later be called an atom, listening to like corpuscles works or a corpuscle idea and stuff like this. And taking the Bible with this, he starts to, to theorize some on this also. Where did he get this out of the Bible? Here we go. This is so cool. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. One of my just favorite verses as being a scientist. This is just an amazing verse. It says, again, I'm going to be out of reading here out of the English Standard Version. It says, for by him, this is talking about Jesus, for by him all things were created. Stop there for a second. Did you realize Jesus is the creator God? That's what that is saying. Continuing, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Stop here. Things that were created that are invisible. Whoa. Okay. Continuing, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. When you study atoms and molecules, you're talking about them being bonded together. It's even in here. Invisible particles bonding together. I mean, why gosh, this is just amazing. And we're not done here. There's, there's another verse. Look at this one. This is in the book of Hebrews. The author of the book of Hebrews writes this under the guidance of the Holy Spirit says, by faith, this is 11.3, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen, matter that we see today, was not made out of things that are visible. What's this talking about? I believe this is talking, I mean, that's a great description of atoms, is what this is talking about. Atoms and molecules. That matter is composed of things that are not visible. Isn't this amazing? So this is written somewhere around um, almost 2,000 years ago. And this is an amazing statement. Both of these, uh, Colossians and Hebrews both stating this. It's talking about things making up matter that are invisible. I mean, it's not that cool. How can you love science and not get into this and think this is just absolutely amazing. It's so cool. But continuing with our story. In 1803, John Dalton proposes the atomic theory that we talk about in physical science frequently. Um, the atomic theory is put together. 1803, that's just 200 years ago, roughly. And he puts this idea together. Then, very soon after this, just a couple of years after this, in 1827, uh, Robert Brown, um, brilliant scientist, he was doing experiments using very crude microscopy, microscopes, and he observed uh, particles, some were living, some were not, but they were moving, even, even things that don't have flagella or uh, cilia or pseudopods, they were moving under the microscope. And he was like, what is doing this? It seems like there's some uh, invisible particles or something that are causing these things to move. Today in biology, we call this Brownian movement. Every time I would teach a biology course at the beginning of the course, one of the first labs we do with a microscope, we look at things under the microscope and I have to try and explain to students as we're going to be studying flagella, uh, cilia and pseudopods, things that help cells move, they have to understand that sometimes just things will vibrate in the water, not because of an earthquake, it's just because they're made of atoms and atoms don't move, thus it is moving. This is called Brownian movement. Um, I have done this many times with non-living things. You see things moving under the microscope or even yeast. Yeast uh, cells like bread yeast under the microscope, little spheres, but appears at times they're moving around. They do not have any propulsion, propulsion unit of their own to do this. 
The reason they seem to be moving is because of Brownian movement. It's one of the things you learn in any biology course. And Robert Brown is the guy who discovered this, but he didn't understand exactly what was doing it. Now we know, of course, it was Adams. Let's move forward another like 60, 70 years. We get to J.J. Thompson, another famous scientist who discovers evidence proving that atoms do exist, though he couldn't see them. But his theories all proved by chemistry and stuff, he proves that there has to be atoms that are making up material and stuff and making up matter. So he comes up with the theory on atoms, but the thing is he can't prove it. Well, very soon after this, just a couple of years, Albert Einstein, the great physicist, actually studies his work and Johnson's work, and he too confirms, he says, yes, uh, what Thompson was saying, um, is absolutely true. It, these are atoms. But it wouldn't be until 1955, just like about 70 years ago, um, a professor at um, Penn State University, his name was Erwin uh, Mueller, he actually developed a special type of microscopy and allowed him to be the first person ever to see this invisible particle that is mentioned in the Bible, in the book of Colossians, in the book of Hebrews, and he actually sees the first atom. And today we have all sorts of atoms now being photographed and stuff. We can do this. Even TV shows have actually in included things like that. There's even an episode of Big Bang where um, Howard actually arranges atoms to make little messages on a slide. So we can, we can do this. And we know now this is all true. The thing is, the invisible things described in the Bible, Colossians and Hebrews, they've been found. The Bible has not been wrong all this time. The Bible is absolutely correct. Which moves us, since we were talking about Einstein, let's just briefly mention something else that Einstein came up with. E equals mc squared, which is the theory of relativity. It's very famous. Most people know that equation, have no idea what it means, uh, many of them, but it's a very, very famous equation that is still being worked out and worked on today by physicists today and astrophysicists. And the thing is, it does explain a lot of really strange things that happen in the world. Um, like, for instance, um, the theory of relativity actually explains for us why astronauts, when they're up in space, age slower than people do on Earth. Or, and Star Trek, um, both the original series, Next Generation, etc., have based a lot of their ideas on this theory also by uh, traveling at, at high speeds, like at warp speed, because it changes, if you go fast enough, it changes the object's shapes just by going faster. Um, there, there's a lot of things we don't, we're not gonna get into all the theory on it. I just wanna touch on a couple of things. Um, and as I said, this is, this is just a simple explanation of the theory of, of relativity. Now, E equals mc squared is talking about E, M, and C. E equals energy. There is energy in the universe. We have energy. It's constant. It's always there. We have matter. Matter now is in the universe. It's always there. And we have light. Or another way of uh, rephrasing it, there's time. Time is always there. And these three must be present in the universe and the effects of this theory then impact every single aspect of life. Because for one, it relates to gravity among other things. So it impacts every single aspect of life. That's why scientists are still studying this. But fascinating thing, just think about this for a second. There's energy, there's matter, and there's time. I was studying this one time, uh, oh, probably about 25, 30 years ago when I came across um, I was been studying E equals MC squared, the theory of relativity, and it just all of a sudden dawned on me that all three of these things are found in the very, very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I may be sitting here thinking, okay, Michael, you just lost me. Where is E equal MC squared there? Remember what the part, uh, those symbols mean. First of all, time. We mentioned time. It says right in there, in the beginning, beginning is time. Then it says, the heavens and the earth, that's matter. Matter is now represented in this equation. So we have time, we have matter. Now we need one more. We need energy. And we see a verb called created. Created is a verb. And it's talking about energy. God used energy. Don't explain, we're not explained uh, in his word how he did this. We have no idea. Uh, that's why he's God. We couldn't figure it out probably if he, if he told us. But the thing is, he created things using energy. We see all three of those things 
all found in Genesis 1-1. I find that fascinating. So in the beginning, God created time, He created matter, He created energy, and He did this in six days. I do believe, and this will be a series we'll do later on, because uh, I used to believe that the earth was billions of years old, et cetera, et cetera, and it took life millions of years to form and evolve. I am no longer a Darwinian evolutionist. Uh, uh, I believe in a six-day creation, and I'll do a series on this as to why and give you evidence to support this, this, what changed my whole outlook on it too. But then, as God is creating in Genesis 1, you get to Genesis 2, 2, and something happens. God stops creating. Boom, he's done creating. What happens is, from a scientific point of view, at that point, the laws of science are now put into place. You see, in the first six days of creation, the laws of science are not applying because God is beyond the laws of science. He creates the laws of science, and then he puts them in place when he's done creating because you just don't make stuff out of nothing. God can do that. And he created matter in a way that we can't explain. It just happens in the way that he did it. And he doesn't explain how he did it. He just says, this is what I did. And then all of a sudden, there's no more creating. So outside of miracles, God doesn't do creating anymore. It was all done in those six days. No new matter has been added to the planet and stuff um, because like this earth had so many atoms when God created, so many atoms of different elements and stuff here, outside of what we've shot up in the space, they're still here. They've been altered. The shapes and uh, the atoms have been altered in arrangements and through chemical reactions and physical changes and stuff, we change things. But the thing is the same amount of atoms are still here. So this is all fitting with this. So the universe, in short, the universe is contained. No new matter is created, except by God with miracles. Um, but matter does get transformed. Matter does get transformed. And this fits into this theory of relativity, but it also borders into a new theory also, another one. But science has shown us, again, no new things are created, being created today, but things do get altered. Take a match, light a match, it changes the shape. The thing is, you're releasing heat energy and um, you're releasing light energy, but the thing is, the matter, the atoms are still there. They've just been rearranged. So it's really fascinating how this all works. But this runs into, like I say, another law of science. It's called the first law of thermodynamics. Now, we're not gonna get real deep into this, but I'm just gonna make a really simple thing, uh, explanation of the law of thermodynamics. It's also got another name. It's called the law of cons conservation of energy. Just another name for it, same thing. It states, and here's what it is, it states that the total energy of an isolated system is constant, but energy can be transformed from one form to another, like a match. Strike the match, add some friction to it, some heat, and it lights. There's a chemical change taking place, not just a physical change in its appearance, but there's a chemical change taking place, and it's releasing heat energy, and it's releasing light energy. But the thing is, it's not creating something, it's just altering its form. It's, it's being transformed from one form of matter into another. So in short, energy is neither created or destroyed. You don't destroy the match, you've just changed its molecular makeup and the structure of it. The atoms are still accounted, accounted for. I remember at one time uh, having a student ask me a question when I was teaching this in physical science many years ago, didn't quite comprehend what was going on. Because they thought, well, don't the molecules just disappear? Don't they just go off? And I said, no, they don't. Let me show you. This is a really simple, really simple experiment. Now, if you have a balance at home, you can do this on your own, or you can maybe borrow one. If you're a homeschooler and you've done some science things, you probably have a balance. It doesn't have to be real technical, just a simple balance. I have one here that we have borrowed from Fort Wilderness's Nature Center, and uh, they've, they've very kindly let me bring, uh, bring this one over so we can do this experiment to show you this. But you only need a couple of things to, to understand thermodynamics that molecules just don't disappear. They just don't, oh my gosh, they're gone. They're, they're instantly destroyed or something. It doesn't happen like that, no. To show how this works is really simple. A balance, I, you can use a flask, or to make this more easy at home, I'm using just a little glass cylinder. Um, you can see I've just added ordinary tap water into this. You need a good sized balloon that's got a nice big mouth on it. No, don't look at me like that. Uh, big, nice mouth on it. And you need a package of Alka-Seltzer. Now this is what I did in the classroom, and I have used this many times. It's a fascinating experiment. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna weigh, I've already um, put the water in the flask. So what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna take this, this uh, little vial of water, and it's about 130 
grams total. I'm setting this on the balance to let you see. I mean, we're at 129.96. That's really close. As a matter of fact, this is a pretty technical balance. I mean, it's not real um, to a thousandth of a gram, but if I blow on it, you will notice that even just that changes the weight of this. Uh, the 129 didn't change, but it's, in other words, it's sensitive. But that doesn't have to be that sensitive for you to see that, how this works. Now, what we're gonna do, we got water in here. So we're gonna pretend like this, uh, this vial and the balloon, because we're gonna add the balloon to the top of this, that's gonna be like the universe um, or our planet or whatever. We're gonna add some extra molecules to this because there's already water in there. Then we're gonna add this to the balloon and then I'm going to put the balloon over the top of that and I'll show you a tricky way of doing this that you can then put the balloon on top. We weigh it and we get the total weight of this thing and then we will cause the reaction to occur. So just follow along. It's really interesting to see. So right now the thing to remember we're right about 129.95. That's roughly 130 um, grams of material here, of matter. Um, and so what we've got is we're gonna, we're gonna um, seal this up in, in a second here and let you see that even though I'm gonna put the Alka-Seltzers in here, they don't get destroyed. The molecules of the Alka-Seltzer are gonna still be in here. Just watch, this is, this is really neat. So first thing, I'm gonna open up the Alka-Seltzer tablets. And what I'm gonna do then, if this gets a little tricky, we gotta put the Alka-Seltzer inside of the balloon. So um, that's very important. We gotta get that down inside the balloon. So it's a little tricky. This is the hard part. This is why you don't wanna use a tiny little balloon either. As you can see, they're going in so easily. But there we go. There's one goes in. I'm gonna put this big chunk in there too. And we're gonna put another one in here. Yeah, open wide, say ah. Uh, take another Alka-Seltzer. We're just gonna snap it in two here, as you can see. And I'm gonna put this one down inside there like so, and this one's gonna go inside. So now what we've done is we've added molecules, atoms and stuff, inside this balloon. And it's all sitting at the bottom right now. Now that's important to keep this in this area like here. You want the, the tablets to stay down at the bottom um, because if you turn it over right now, it's, they're just gonna fall out. So what we're gonna do, now comes the tricky part. So I'm gonna weigh both of these first of all on the balance now and let you see what the total weight is. So now we are at 139.78 grams, 139.78. Now, the only difference I'm gonna do is we're now gonna add the Alka-Seltzer to the water. This is the law of, fir uh, the first law of thermodynamics. Nothing's gonna get destroyed. We're just gonna change the, the type of, uh, of atom arrangements in this thing. Instead of being a solid like Alka-Seltzer, it's gonna turn into a gas, and it's gonna change uh, the liquid into an acid, uh, citric acid and aspirin. Now comes the hard part, though. So we've weighed this out, and now I'm just gonna play it safe. I'm gonna try and get this rubber band, keeping the, <laughs> so important, keep the Alka-Seltzer at the bottom. And now I'm gonna try and put this over the top just like that, and see how that went really well. Put it back on here, it should be still the same weight. So let's take a look, we're at 139.78. And now we're gonna drop, I'm gonna raise this up, the Alka-Seltzer will go inside here, and it looks like, it looks like they get destroyed. But they don't, they don't get destroyed. Matter is just being uh, changed, but it's still there. All the molecules are still gonna be in there. So here we go, are you ready to watch this? Let's do it. I'm gonna pick this up and help the Alka-Seltzer to get down into the bottom. Now, if you have to, you can crunch them up a little easier because they're already weighed up and everything. And you're gonna see, oh my gosh, here we go. We're starting to get the molecules now going and gotta get it all in there. And they're almost all in. You'll notice the balloon's doing something now too. Now, look at the, the balance here. It's moving because I need to stop breathing. But you're not going to see it change hardly at all. There's a little bit of air current in here changing, but it's basically staying stable as we do this. I'm going to move this over just a tad to get it closer in there. And I'm going to back up a little bit. 
This will stabilize if I stop talking, but if I stop talking, then we get a silent movie. But we were at 139 grams to begin with. You notice the Alka-Seltzers have gone, but we're still at 139 grams. Isn't that fascinating? It's staying the same. Now the Alka-Seltzer has changed shapes. There's no longer the white chunks in there. What's happened is they've turned uh, molecules into carbon dioxide gas, which is what's forming here. But the molecules, this is the important thing about thermodynamics. Molecules didn't disappear. They weren't destroyed. They were altered. They changed shape. But they're all contained still inside. All the molecules we put in there are still inside. The glass vial, the water, the little airspace in there, and now inside the balloon. It's like, yeah, you can see it's basically, uh, if I move my hands too fast, it starts to change the shape. But there you go. See, that is an example of thermodynamics. We're still at 139 grams. Even though those big tablets dissolved and disappeared, they're still in there. The molecules are in there. So it's like when God created the planet and stuff, um, he put so many molecules on this planet. As time goes on, they change. Uh, they turn into light energy, heat energy. There's all sorts of different changes, but the molecules are still here. That's the law of thermodynamics. That's what this is illustrating. And by the way, at the end of this, if you try this at home, you have an upset stomach, you can still drink this and it won't hurt you a bit. Gets rid of that acid reflux. But that is the law of thermodynamics. As you see, it's just getting bigger and bigger. The molecules came from what was inside of the Alka-Seltzer tablets. Those molecules are in the water, in the little space of the gas now inside there. Thermodynamics, 139 grams. And as you can see, it said talking, it's still changing the shape a little bit because it's a sensitive balance, trying to stay away. Isn't that cool? Now, we do find this in the Bible. Solomon, very wise person, wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 9, he says this. What has been is what will be. Now, he was a poet. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Get that last part there. There is nothing new under the sun. Talking about matter, talking about the universe and everything that's going on, Solomon, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is saying nothing changes. Everything, there's nothing new. Nothing new being added. That's the law, first law of thermodynamics. And that's not the only place that it's mentioned. Move down a couple of chapters to chapter 3, verse 14. You're going to see this verse again. Isn't this fascinating? You see science verses right in a Bible like this? I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear him. But you get that. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away. That is actually the law, first law of thermodynamics. That's what it is. Oh, it can alter but it doesn't disappear. Matter is neither created nor destroyed. Only God can do that. And that's it. That's how it goes. Though the title, Law of Thermodynamics, was not invented until the 19th century, the principle of this law goes down centuries before, back into ancient history. Wow. And this also states, if you think about this for a moment, that abiogenesis, or another name for that is spontaneous generation, cannot occur. Now, we're going to have a whole series on this, too, about the origin of life. But the thing is, it just life couldn't have just formed out of nothing. You just can't have a primordial soup and a bunch of chemicals and it form. Um, Rudolf Virchow, um, very famous scientist who also believed in his Bible, said life can only come from life. But he understood the law of thermodynamics, um, and so he came up with this idea, too, that you know life can only come from life. That's what he was saying. So the foundation of how some believe life began in this planet, the law of thermodynamics, first law of thermodynamics goes against that, that all of a sudden matter just starts beginning and, and stuff. But anyway, as we continue with this, um, evolutionists, particularly, believed that life began somehow in a mass of chemicals in the ocean, and somehow, miraculously, as Francis Crick put it, DNA was formed somehow. And these first cells started to form and evolve, and they did this for billions of years until we got to what we have today. Well, there's a problem with this when you get into thermodynamics. And the thing is, you see, they believed that the first life forms were not too well organized and formed. That's why we call it like bacteria or protozoans, simple cells, that they're very, very simple in their complexity. Um, but then as time goes on, according to Darwinian evolution, mutations come that are beneficial and add genes to the genome or to the DNA of the organism, allowing more complex, 
life forms to come into existence. This is Darwinian evolution. And eventually life forms become more and more complex, more and more organized. Things get better as things keep aging and getting older. That's what Darwinian evolution says. Well, this is totally contrary to this, this idea of thermodynamics, especially the second law of thermodynamics. Because the second law of thermodynamics is sometimes called the law of increased entropy. And what we're talking about here, things don't get better as time goes on. They start to degrade and get worse. They don't get better. Um, that's what this is talking about. The second law of thermodynamics says that energy and order become less and less available as time goes on. Things are not getting better, they get worse. According to Darwinian evolution, we start very simple and we keep getting more complex and better as it goes on. No, second law of thermodynamics is saying, no, just the opposite's happening. Things start off complex and better running and stuff and as time goes on, they get worse. Um, that's what this is talking about. And um, things get more, they start becoming more like random and disorganized as time goes on. A great example of this, this whole thing of disorganization, randomness, chaos ensuing as time goes on and stuff. Um, this is totally contrary to the, to the theory of evolution. But this is also explains why cars break down. When you go out and you buy a brand new car, it looks beautiful. What's it going to look like in 10 years? Probably not the same. Or I hate to look at this one, but um, taking a look at this body standing in front of you. When it was uh, like about uh, 50 years ago, this body was in pretty pristine condition. Matter of fact, in my high school and college years, I was quite the athlete and stuff. You would never guess that today. Um, my wife could easily outrun me um, and, and in a race, I would never beat her or anything uh, on a lot of things. This body is breaking down. Why? The second law of thermodynamics is doing it. I'm becoming less organized, less perfected, and things are getting worse as time goes on. And I think probably all of you can associate to that. So don't blame, you know, like you don't have to blame everything on the cupcakes and the chocolate mayonnaise cake and stuff. Part of this is just the law of second, uh, the second law of thermodynamics. I mean, that's a bummer because we're getting worse as time goes on. We're getting less organized, getting less perfected is what happens. And that's what's going on. And the Bible supports this law of science also. This law was established at the time of man's fall of grace. When God created everything, everything was perfect. As Genesis is going on in Genesis 1, or even in Exodus and other account, uh, creation accounts, God is constantly saying when he makes something, it's absolutely perfect. But when he finishes making it, everything is perfect. There is no death, there is no aging, there is absolute perfection. How does this work? It's against the laws of science today because something happened. Man sinned and caused the fall to happen. Adam's sin and the law of second, uh, second law of thermodynamics comes into effect at that moment. And all of creation, not just humans, all of creation is suffering. So, you understand this. When God was creating, he says everything's perfect. That's Genesis 3, 17 through 19. We see everything's perfect. But then man sins and voila, the laws of nature are changed. And this was then approved by God. And because he said, this is what's going to happen if you disobey. We chose poorly. And now we have death. We have disease. We have the second law of thermodynamics happening to us all the time. And it's, it's a bummer. It's a bad thing. But all's not lost. The Bible even talks about this in Romans chapter 8 verses 20 through 22. If we just wrap this up here. For the creation, God's creation, was subjected to fertility. Now stop here for a second. His creation member was perfect, but then it was subjected to futility. Not willingly, no, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free of its bondage to decay and obtain, and it's like second dynamics again, and, de, uh, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, here's the important part, we know that the whole creation, the whole cosmos, the whole universe has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. God is telling us here the Holy Spirit is speaking to Paul and he's writing down, there was perfection and then the second law of thermodynamics comes in and it causes death, decay, disease, suffering, breaking down, illness, all this stuff happens. 
as a result of what man's choice was. We don't blame God for this. It was man's choice that did all this. And now we're in this state and have been in the state since Adam and Eve of this degrading. And that's why I look this way in front of you today. Um, I used to have a lot of hair, in fact. But anyway, rest assured in this, all's not lost. We can rest assured that in the future, God's going to stop this law. For when we get to the new heaven, everything's going to be perfect again. There's no aging. There's no dying. There's no death if we're born again. If we, if we have a personal relationship with God, if we trust him as our Lord and Savior and, and commit our lives to him, we don't have that anymore. And the law, yes, while we're here on this physical earth, the second law of thermodynamics is affecting us. But the day will then come. It does not affect us anymore. And we live for eternity. To do that, there is no second law of thermodynamics. God abolishes that law, and he can. He creates the laws. He can abolish the laws. That's his power to do that. Well, that's physical science. As I said, there's not a whole lot of physical science in the Bible, but you see just a couple of things here. And we're going to be looking at other ones coming up. We're going to be looking like at geology and meteorology and astronomy and oceanography, et cetera, et cetera. Looking at these different subjects like that. This one was physical science. And as you probably noticed now, I'm not uh, a master at physical science. I am a biologist instead. But um, you can see that the word of God, though, supports physical science. There's no science error that you find in the Bible dealing with physical science. There's none. But there's a few passages in here that support physical science. So until we meet again, take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give and help us keep this broadcast free. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. You can also send us a message, let us know what you thought about this episode. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at our website as well. This is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.